Good morning. Please join me as we read the scripture starting in Luke twenty-two sixty-three. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ the king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your word that teaches us. We thank you so much for sending Jesus and all that he was willing to go through for us. And we now um, just ask that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us today and that you would just speak through Grant in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Becky. Gosh, what a powerful passage. It's just overwhelming. Like I get that, I, I get the cross, you know, I, I understand that Death had to be conquered by death. I get that. But when I see Jesus ridiculed, it's overwhelming. I don't know. To, uh, it's, it's, it's almost more than I can take to see this scene. You know, you don't really know who the heroes are until you see them on the big stage. Everybody at some point is going to whiff, right? It's hard for me not to tell the story of the World Baseball Classic. I'm an Angel fan. And at the championship game, how many of you knew that the World Baseball Classic just happened? Yeah, it ain't soccer. I know, soccer is much more popular. I know, I know. It's like jazz or something. Yeah, baseball's just a little niche over there now where you can get paid $600 million, apparently. It's a good niche. <laughs> the World Baseball Classic came up, and two of the players that are on the same team during the year, Shohei Otani on the mound and Mike Trout, at the plate, and this was the hardest thing for me to watch ever. I'm an Angel fan, and I hated it. I mean, I was like, I, I want everybody to win or nobody to win. I don't know. But Mike Trout, the great Angel hero, you know, he, uh, he struck out. This great pitch, slider, swing, and a miss. It remind I know, some of you are gasping. You imagine how I felt. <laughs> it reminded me... Um, of one of my favorite poems, you know, I spent a lot of time in the library in high school because that's where they send kids when they're talking too much in class. <laughs> and uh, there was a 
an old copy. I actually loved this book so much I found it uh, online uh, several years ago and bought it. So there's a copy of it uh, on our shelf at home. <clears throat> and it's called The Omnibus of Sport. So like everything, you know, sports related, but it's, it's published in the 30s, I think. So, you know, a lot of like prize fighting and horse racing and stuff like that. But that's where I first read uh, Ernest Thayer's Casey at the Bat. Do you know this story? Yeah, it's the story of the, the great and mighty Casey who steps up to the bat and, and lets strike one go by and the crowd boos and he <clears throat> waves his hand and silences the crowd. And then another pitch goes by. I used to have this memorized. Because um, whenever the teacher goes, you all have to memorize the poem. I'm like, yeah. Um, <laughs> I got mine. It's either that or the hollow men. That's the other one. Um, but uh, strike two, and the crowd boos, fraud, and Casey waves his hand again. And then the sneer leaves Casey's face, and he grits his teeth in hate. And the pitcher slings the ball, and there goes the mighty blow of Casey's bat. And somewhere birds are singing, and somewhere children something. But there is no joy in Mudville. The mighty Casey has struck out. It's an important, it's an important American poem. <clears throat> it's why everybody should watch baseball, because, because even with your greatest heroes, there is going to be failure. On the big stage, everybody's going to let you down one time or another. And we see Jesus here in front of these men. And it's actually not that big a stage. There's lots of things going on. People are celebrating a holiday. Families in town. There's lots going on in Jerusalem that doesn't have to do with this meeting. And yet, cosmically, universally, as it relates to life and death and eternity, this is center stage. All of heaven and earth looking at Jesus in this moment. Will he crack at the last minute? Will Jesus finally give in to anger that you and I would have given in to long ago? It would have been one argument with the Pharisees way up in Galilee. I would have been disqualified forever. And here is your Savior, the God-man, being ridiculed, mocked, without cracking, faithful, obedient, successful in the mission to which he had been given. You know, the, the most important thing <clears throat> about you is the answer to who Jesus is. The thing that's going to set the course of the rest of your life People have done unforgivable things. Will you forgive them? It doesn't look like the world is fair. Are you going to be okay? In the middle of the sorrow of life, are you going to give in to it or will joy be bubbling up in you? In the middle of the victories in life, will pride swell in you to where you know, you're condescending to others or will you remain a servant? Who Jesus is is really the first and most important thing 
in your life and in my life. And it's been the most important thing in the Gospels. All four of the Gospels, the central question is who is Jesus? And I don't know if there's any story. Like I say, the cross is so grand and and it breaks my heart too, but the cross is so grand. I've heard it my whole life. I've seen skits and plays and images and you know, there's there's lots of uh, concepts of the cross in my mind where Jesus is unaffected and noble and, you know, just kind of um, um, above it all as he pays this price for my sin. But here, was ridicule necessary? Faithful, successful, obedient. Luke has set up the question, who is Jesus from the very beginning? Luke starts with the birth narratives. I was just looking. We, we started this, um, this sermon series uh, like three Christmases ago. If you're new to the church, we have been other places. We, we, it hasn't, this is our 73rd sermon in Luke, but it hasn't been 73 consecutive weeks. But it starts with, you know, the Annunciation of Mary. Mary, he, you're this baby, will be called the Lord Most High. He will be called Emmanuel. He will have the, the throne of his father, David. It, Luke has been very clear from the very beginning. And then, of course, there's this in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, kind of the central conversation that happens is Peter uh, at Caesarea Philippi, just outside those cities, as as, uh, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? That's the question. That is the question. Who do people say that I am? Well, some people say you're this. Some people say you're that. Some people think you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Some people say you're Elijah. Some people say one of the prophets. I, 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 Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it in a way that I, he, he's going to have a hard time living it out. But he says, no, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Luke has been very clear. And once that you hear those things, There's almost like a tension in the reader. Is he going to be able to be it? We know who Luke claims he is. Oh, then there's the triumphal entry just a week previous to this where he, and it never comes out of Jesus' mouth. I love that. Jesus never is like, just so you know, I'm the king. Like that's not what he does. Rather, it's all in imagery. It's others celebrating him. It's go get me a donkey that's worthy of kingship. It's, it, it's this procession, this kingly procession. And as readers, we are, are drawn into the story to go, but can he pull it off? Because every other like hero, every other person at some point, it's sin, it's anger, it's pride. The mighty Casey strikes out. That's an important important story. Is Jesus going to be able, as we see him crying in the garden, sweating, drop tears like blood, is he going to be able to endure? Does he love me that much? He's the Christ. Is he going to prove it? This passage has a high Christology to it. If you wanted to know about who Jesus is, this this might be a, a passage where you would turn. 
His titles are there. We're going to read this. Uh, several of the titles of, of Jesus are there. His character is in center stage. But this passage forces us also to ask another question. And that is, what is in my heart? You know, the same way it's easy for me to, like I think I get Pilate. Pilate's a politician who wants everybody to shut up and vote for him. It's not that complicated. I get Rome. Rome is a world power who's dealing with an out-of-the-way outpost and again, just wants to squash every rebellion. I get the priesthood. They're powerful and they like power and they don't want to get crushed by Rome. But these guys, this interpersonal looking at Jesus and smacking him with a stick, I'm not going to be Pilate. I'm not going to be Rome. But I might have it in me to be that guy with the stick. I might have a mocking heart. And this story is going to, we're going to sing a song that I can't remember the title of it right now, but we're going to close with, what's it, what's it called? Uh, how great the Father's love for us. And it has that line in it, afraid or something about hearing my mocking voice call out among the scoffer. And this story not only holds Christ high, it's high Christology, it is very accurate theological anthropology. It shows you what people are like. And you're a people and so am I. And if we elevate ourselves above the mockers, we are bringing Christ down. <laughs> but rather, we have to look at humans and go, what a bunch of sinners. And then we look at Jesus and go, and how loved are we? We got to do a couple things. We got to examine our hearts. Is there any pride in me? Is there any bitterness? Is there any mockery in me? And then that gives us the ability to rejoice in the sacrifice of Jesus that makes it possible for us to be forgiven even from the evil that might be in our hearts. I mean, this is a tragic scene. Remember where we've been, too. This is a culmination of a week where Jesus has clashed with religious leaders, with Pharisees and scribes and, and priests in the public square. He's been rejected by them. There's kind of the high point of the upper room discourse. There's washing feet and all this beautiful, all these beautiful stories told and communion instituted and, uh, and, and initiated. What, I don't know, there's a word there. Uh, communion began and, and then, but immediately after that, Peter has denied Jesus and Judas has handed him over to this very council. And all of the rest of the disciples have scattered. And so maybe I'm not Rome and maybe I'm not Pilate and maybe I'm not the high priest, but I might be the mocker and you know, I really might be the deserter. And Jesus stands alone with all of heaven and earth just looking on with our eternity at stake. Stands alone Getting punched, kicked, hit with sticks, mocked, spit on, danced around. Is he going to do it? Can he do it? Does he love us that much? Is he faithful to the Father like that? He has our attention. He is bearing our scorn. 
He is doing what you and I could not. There have been stories of martyrs experiencing similar kinds of struggle, but we would have to say none of them are enduring that in their own steam or power. This is God at work in them. He is saving us. Oh, I've got something for you. He's saving those men. He's dying for the guy with the stick. He's dying for the guy spitting on him and mocking him. He's dying for the guy whose hand will have the nail in it, hold it up to his wrist and jive it in with a hammer. His blood is that effective. Do you remember 1 Corinthians um, 1.18? I, I feel like this little, this little scene is, is a great example of what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians. As he said, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Jesus is innocent and doesn't deserve it. Jesus should turn into an avenger right now and start shooting lightning out of his fingers. That's what should happen. It should be some kung fu stuff going on in here where Jesus just takes everyone out and goes, I didn't do it. And yet there he is. Faithful. So the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So there's a question. Jesus in this moment, and we can't separate this from the cross. We're just going to have this, and then we're going to have the, the uh, next week, we're going to look at him in Herod's court, and then back with Pilate, and then there'll be Good Friday, and we'll talk about the crucifixion. And we just need to think of all of this as one thing. We go, what do you see there? Is that foolishness? Is it folly? Or is this the reason we live and breathe? The most beautiful story ever told. You want to know why I'm a Christian? I don't have all the answers. Christians let me down all the time. There's Christian leaders. I can't even look at the news. Like I, it, it's just, it just breaks my heart what like, people are capable of, even those that claim to be Christians. That's not why I'm a Christian, because I believe in the church. I mean, I, I believe in, in Jesus instituting the church. Yeah, I think the church is super important and super beautiful, but I think there's weeds growing up with the wheat and we just can't tell. It's not why I'm a Christian. I'm not, I'm not a Christian because I feel like I have all the answers. I'm a Christian because this is the most beautiful story I can possibly imagine. God become man, and I know I'm the mocker. I know I'm the deserter. I know my own heart that he would love me this much. Is this... Is this the story that's setting the tone for your whole life? The cost is so high, like the humiliation of Jesus. And the evil is so deep as I look at what humans are capable of. But the work is so effective. Acts 6-7 says that the Word of God continued to increase. This is just before Stephen... Um, uh, is martyred. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The guys that put Jesus on the ground, the guys that are in the courtroom today that we read about, the, or that we'll read about next week, yelling, crucify, like the people in the Sanhedrin, the priests, the council, many of them come to Christ. Jesus is dying for them. If I was God, I'd be like, I am dying for the sins of the world except these guys. But the love of God is so great 
Jesus is making a way. He's tearing down dividing walls. He's reversing the curse. He's bearing the weight of sin, even for these men. Some of these men will tell us this story in heaven. How great is the grace of Jesus? How wonderful is his kindness to us? My friends, would we lay down our pride now and bow to him? So our, our story, verse 22, or I'm sorry, yeah, chapter 22, verses 63, 65. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. What humiliation. But you know, this didn't start here. Let's remember, as ugly as this is, as terrible as this is, this is not where the humiliation of Jesus starts. In fact, Philippians 2 reminds us that um, Jesus just coming to earth was an incredible act of condescension, that, that kenosis of Jesus, that Jesus in some way emptied himself just to take the form of a man so he could be here. Like we make a big deal about like there he is lowly in a manger. I say this every Christmas, but a palace would have been no, wouldn't have been worthy of him either. Where, where on earth would be worthy of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? And yet Jesus, that's what he's been doing the whole time is emptying himself so that he could be the sacrifice, so that he could be the propitiation for your sin. Not just, not just pay for our sin, but undo the curse. Like solve the whole problem. Draw us to him. Be victorious over the power of darkness. From Genesis 3, God had said that it would be the one who conquers death would have to taste death in order to conquer it. The serpent's going to bite his heel. He's going to crush the serpent's head. Isaiah had talked about this man of suffering by whose stripes we might be healed. So on this day, with this humiliation, Jesus is continuing to prove his willingness to do what is necessary to undo the curse. It says they asked him to prophesy. Interesting, though, that this moment is fulfilling a recent prophecy. Jesus had said the Son of Man is going to be turned over to the council and they'll beat him and mock him. There's this spiritual blindness in these men. There's this, there, there's this um, you know, almost ironic fulfillment as Luke, is, as Luke is telling us the story. As they go, why don't you prophesy? Prophecy, his prophecy is being fulfilled. Which means he knew. And still he stands there says that they mocked him. That word mocked literally means danced around. You ever seen a junior high fight? <laughs> like that. That they danced around him. Hey, prophesy. Aren't you almost cheering for Jesus to deck one of them? Just one. Not one. It highlights, I think we should even, you know, if we're looking at this as anthropology, as we're looking at this as what humans are capable of, I think we need to be careful about mobs, whether they're in person or whether they're online. <laughs> that somehow we're worse 
in groups with bad ideas even than we are individually with bad ideas. We need to look at the ultimate humility of Jesus. It says they blasphemed him. Surely this is Luke's commentary. You can only blaspheme God. Luke is showing us what's happening in the room. So they think they're teasing and mocking a prisoner, but what's actually happening is they're mocking God. So not only did the humiliation of Jesus not begin on this day, but rather this is a culmination, but neither did the sin of these men. We're told that these are the men who were guarding Jesus. And you guys can work this out on Wednesday night. We'll have questions about it. But almost certainly the guard, the people who are guarding Jesus are, are from the Sanhedrin. Luke is using the term the council. Um, elsewhere, they're called the Sanhedrin. These are like the city council in Jerusalem. These are the leaders the religious and political leaders, remember it's, it's a theocracy, religious and political leaders are the same, and, and, and there's a council of 70 men, the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, and this is who Jesus is going to be tried before, so it's their guard. They're not Rome. Don't you have it in your head that the soldiers mocking and beating Jesus were Roman soldiers? They're not. They're Jewish. At least so far. They're People that work for the Sanhedrin and for the high priest. We've been seeing this build over time. Arguments and challenges in the temple courts. They've been biding their time. You remember over and over, over the last several weeks that we've been preaching through this week, it's been like, and they wanted to kill him, but they were afraid of the people. Where on this, in the early morning hours of this day, they finally found they're not afraid of the people anymore. The people are asleep. The people are partying because it's Passover. The people are not here. They are emboldened and they are getting him. Chickens. But this is what's been in their heart the whole time. And when I accuse them, I'm accusing myself too. Are you with me? Let's not look at them and go, ugh, I never would. We'd all like to think we would be the good guys in the history book. We all like to think I would have run the Underground Railroad right through my house. I've got evil in me. I need to be saved. I need a Savior. Hey, Christians, these guys were religious too. Probably more religious than us. They still had Sunday night church back then. <laughs> if there is hate in our heart, forget about religion. If there's hate in our heart, if there's rebellion in our heart, if there's bitterness in our heart, can we just repent of it? Just let it go. It's destructive. These men could have repented a hundred times. Jesus had been teaching in their town all week. At any point, they could have been like, that's it. He's God. He's, he's the Messiah. I'm going to follow him. But they didn't. And every time you reject him, your heart gets a little harder. And I'm not saying that if we have bitterness in us, that it will always bloom into this kind of violence. But I'm saying that Luke makes it clear that this kind of violence in the hearts of mankind um, exists and may it be far from us you know jesus told us jesus instructed us to love our neighbor to love our enemy um, and if we have any bitterness or or hatred in our heart for our enemy or our neighbor 
Jesus would later say, hey, how you treated the least of these in your society, that's how you treated me. This is a big deal. This is a big deal as we engage with the culture. I worry that in here we all think we're the good guys and then we go out there and they're not sure because we don't love them. I guess one of the things you have to ask yourself, is it more a show of strength to be the guy with the stick or the guy who will endure the guy with the stick because he's obeying so he can redeem mankind, so he can pay the price even for the sins that are currently committed against him. And then there's this trial and like 66 to 71, trial in air quotes. Um, this is sort of an interrogation. They are questioning Jesus, but they're only looking for answers they already know, already, they, they already know they want. Um, and that is so dangerous. When we approach God knowing that we're right already, there's this line in worship songs that actually in one of the worship songs we played today, we changed the line. We rewrote it with all apologies to the very talented songwriter. But it used to say, God is for us. And we changed it to God, he loves us. And when I say we, I mean me. Um, don't blame anybody else on the worship team. And, and, and that's a really common thing. I'm reading that a lot right now, that God is for us. And I mean, I guess God is um, for us. Is God for us? Well, we're told that God opposes the proud. So if there's pride in your heart, I think, it's, I think this makes the most sense as we look at parent, a loving parent and their children. Am I for my kids? Well, if they're robbing a bank, I'm not. I mean, ultimately, I love them. I'm for their well-being, but if they are against their own well-being, then there's enmity between us. And that's the way these guys are approaching. They already know the answer. They think they're right. They just have to beat it out of Jesus. They know they're right. They just have to beat it out of Jesus. See, we don't just come to Jesus to have our sins forgiven. We come to Jesus to have our minds transformed. You with me? We make a mistake if we go, well, I asked Jesus into my heart, so now everything I think is a Christian answer. No, we need to have our minds transformed over the course of our lives. And these guys, they, they, they think they're religious. They think they're on God's side, but they have no transformation at all. So the questions coming out of these men's mouths, um, they're not seeking truth. They're seeking the means to do what they've already decided in their hearts to do. And I think that's something we've got to watch out for. And as they question Jesus, they're inadvertently revealing who Jesus is. And that's what pride does. Like the more they like elevate themselves, the more the truth about Jesus comes out. In verse 67, they say, are you the Christ? Oh, yes, he is. The word Christ is um, a Greek word, the Hebrew word is messiah so those are the same words and of course there's a ton of old testament expectation there but but really what they're asking is are you the one that we've been looking for and we might ask ourselves is jesus the one we're looking for verse 69 jesus responds and says from now on the son of man 
He is the Christ. He is the Son of Man. In Luke, this is Jesus' favorite thing to call himself. And remember, the term Son of Man always refers us back to Daniel. And Daniel, as the Ancient of Days, calls the Son of Man, one like a Son of Man, and puts him in authority over an eternal kingdom. Jesus claimed that was him. This has high Christology. And this is an audacious claim. Not only am I the Messiah, not only am I the Christ, no, I'm actually the, the divine Son of Man that you've read about your whole life in Daniel. But that, he doesn't seem like that right now. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man's coming down with, in clouds and in glory. And now we have a prisoner getting beaten. And you and I, we have to make a decision. Who's right? Is Jesus who he says he is? There's two realities here. Verse 70, they say, you are, are you the Son of God? To these men accusing Jesus, Christ and Son of Man and Son of God are synonyms. They all mean the same thing. Jesus, are you claiming that you're the God-man? In their pride, with the power of darkness in their sails. Remember, Jesus has already said, this is your moment and the power of darkness. Like this is the full brunt of the powers of darkness falling on Jesus. It sure doesn't look like Jesus is God in this moment. And Luke wants us to decide where is the power in this story? Is the power in this story with the violent mob? Is the power in this story with the powerful inquisitors or in this silent man of suffering? Like who... Who do you want to be like? Who's your hero in the story? The guy with the stick? The guy with all the puffed up power? Or the man of suffering? Luke is clear about who Jesus is. He also clear, clearly demonstrates Jesus' awareness of his purpose. Look at Jesus' answer to these questions. They say, are you the Christ? And he says, look, if I tell you, you're not going to believe it. He's unwilling to throw pearls before swine, even now. It would just cause more judgment on these men. But here's what he will tell them. He says, but the events of this day are misleading. From now on, the Son of Man will be where He belongs, in glory. So they say, are you the Son of God? And He says, it is as you said, or something like that. It's a Hebraism that just means you got it, dude. Yep, you said it. So that's all they need to hear? What should they have said? Do you have evidence of this? Could you prove this? Have you ever like maybe fed 5,000 people with just a couple of loaves of bread? Have you ever walked on water? Have you ever, have you ever been baptized and had the voice of God say, this is my son who, in whom I'm well pleased? Like, is there reason for us to believe this? But no, they just are getting the answer they want. It's a proud heart. And so they just drag him to Pilate. And it's crazy. Just read 23, 1 through 5 with me. Then the whole company of them, so the whole company of them is now the Sanhedrin. Maybe there's, it took 35 for a quorum, I think. So between 35 and 70 guys plus the guards. So it's like a, a large group of people. Drag him into Pilate. I'm sure Pilate really enjoyed being woken up early. 
And the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. I mean, do you read that and go, this is a totally different conversation. There should be a chapter break in here or something. Because this is what pride does is it turns truth into self-serving lies. Like, why did they even go to Pilate? Why don't they just stone him? Why don't they just stone him? If they're accusing him of blasphemy, Moses said they could stone somebody who was blasphemous. Why don't they just do that? And why are these accusations so different than the ones before the Sanhedrin, before the council? Well, I'll tell you why. Because these guys don't care about the truth at all. All they care about is their own power. And we've been talking about that in all of these arguments and conversations with Jesus teaching in the temple courts for, you know, a couple of months now. But here's where it finds its culmination. They just care about themselves. They care about getting their way. They, keep about keeping, they care about keeping power. They care about using Pilate to get what they want. Hey, guys, um, this is a whole side. We don't have time for all this, but be really careful when you see Christians want to use the power of the state to accomplish stuff they want. Paul said that we don't fight like the rest of the world fights, but for us, it's, power, it's prayer, it's fasting, We don't need prayer and fasting and political power. We don't need prayer and fasting and the White House. What we need is the church to be so faithful and so Christ-like that the world changes from the ground up. That's, that's, that's the Jesus way. When we care about ourselves instead of the truth, we become capable of terrible things. Look at the accusations that Pilate heard. We found this man misleading our nation. Do you guys remember that story? That must be in one of those new translations. Not once. Jesus didn't mislead the nation once. Forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. There was a story about giving... Tribute to, but it was the exact opposite of what they're saying. Jesus had said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. This is the exact opposite of the truth. Why would they lie like that? They're not trying to tell the truth. They're trying to tick off Pilate. They just need to use the power of the state to accomplish what they want. They'll say anything to get it. We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Should they care about tribute to Caesar? And then they say, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. I love that comma, a king, because they know Pilate doesn't know who Christ is. He claims to be Christ, a king. <laughs> it's like, Pilate, here's why you should care. Is Jesus a king? Sure, absolutely, the king. But not in a way that they hope Pilate hears the accusation. And it's interesting that this is the only thing that gets Pilate's attention. So Pilate looks at him and goes, are you king of the Jews? And again, Jesus goes, you said it. 
But this doesn't have the effect that the mob hopes for. And we'll pick up here next week. But look, Pilate doesn't care who the king of the Jews is. The Herod, to one of Herod's kids, he doesn't care. I don't care how you guys organize yourselves. This guy says he's king of the Jews. This sounds like a local problem to me. So he sends him off to Herod. And we'll pick up there next week and, and see Jesus in Herod's office and then back before Pilate. But guys, do you see how ugly religion is without submission? Do you see what's possible in a human heart? And guys, do you see how loved you are? Do you see what Jesus was willing to endure? At one point or another, all of your heroes are going to let you down. They're either going to get old and die or they're going to strike out or, or something's going to happen or you'll be in weird positions where your second favorite baseball player is pitching to your favorite baseball player. You don't know how this is even supposed to go. <laughs> It'll happen. At least it did to me. Where do we find faithful? Where do we find leaders we can trust? It's just one. The most important thing about any of us is who we say Jesus is. And Luke has been making some absolutely outrageous claims about Jesus, that he's God, that he's the Messiah, that he's Christ, that he's the Son of Man. And we get to see in this story and in the ones that follow, the faithfulness of Christ that proves it. Man, would you search your heart right now? If there is any part of you following anything except this man, would you repent of it? If your hope is anywhere else, why? If there's bitterness to be found in us, if there's anger to be found in us, if you've got a little mocker in you, it's okay. You can still like... It's still Sunday. You don't have to go much longer. You can still pretend to be whatever you want on the outside. But if you look in your own heart and there's some mocker or some deserter or some denier, would you know how loved you are and repent? Turn. Give yourself fully to the one who gave himself fully to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Gosh, thank you. Lord, the story overwhelms me. It, it's it's life-changing. It, it's, it's a joy to meditate on and it's horrible to meditate on. Lord, to know what people are capable of and to see your love and power and strength that can endure even what people are capable of. Lord, you are mighty. How great is our God. Lord, would you... Help us over this season where we just have a couple of weeks till Easter. Lord, would you help us to be so focused on you that the worries and cares and struggles of this world would fade away. And we would find our joy, our hope, that we would endure because you endured more, that we will know we're loved because you proved how much you love us. Lord, we pray that eternal life would bubble up from inside us. I love you, God. Thanks for time in the scriptures today. In Jesus' name, amen.